The singing has been wonderful this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 105. And we'll trust that the Spirit of God that's been in our singing will also be in the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, both the speaking of it and the hearing of it this morning. Well, we've come to the last message in the life of Joseph, as we've looked at Joseph's walk with God. And we'll read here in Psalm 105 what initially will seem like a passage that doesn't apply, but when we get down to beginning essentially um, in verses 16 and following, where the application is to Joseph this morning. And truthfully, I didn't know where to parachute in in the preaching in chapters 42 through 50 in Genesis, and this does a wonderful job of encompassing it all so that we can teach and understand it this morning. Psalm 105 and verse 1, the Bible says, O give thanks unto the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people, sing unto Him, sing psalm, psalms unto Him, talk ye of all His wondrous works. Glory ye in His holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham, and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee I will give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance, when they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people. He suffered no man to do them wrong, yet he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed." And do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He brake the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for his servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all of his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his senators wisdom. Father, help us this morning as we come to the word of God. In particular, as we come to study the life of Joseph. What a beloved Bible character But more importantly, what a faithful man of God. We find no faults written of the man Joseph. He is the template and example for what we as believers in Christ should strive to be. This morning, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand this man. We've looked at Joseph and your word, your will, your way, and your work. And all of those things in a person's life, especially the life of a man yielded to you, surrendered to you, all of those things will lead to glory, not for the man, but for you. That is the wonder of it all. Lord, this morning we have sung, and as we have spent time together, in our corporate worship we have lifted up your name. Our hope is in you and your faithfulness that is so great. You are a God that is beyond description. 
And so we sing as the chorus did in the last song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name. Help us today, I pray, to see in the life of Joseph the wonder of it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 105 and verse 5, as we read, says this, Remember His marvelous works that He hath done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. A song that was sung by David that we read this morning. The ark was being brought back from captivity by the Philistines and was being brought back from the house where it had been stored for a while after a great sin was committed. In 2 Samuel 6 and in 1 Chronicles 16, 650 years after Joseph lived, this song that we read was sung. And it spoke of the man Joseph and just who he was. Joseph's life closes with a most glorious finale. There's been no fault that we found in this young man in every step along God's pathway for him. Yet we come to the end of his life, and where many make their failure, Joseph is a success. Let me categorize, if I can, since I couldn't decide which passage in Genesis 42 through 50, to read for our text from his actual life this morning. What I want to do is, in those eight chapters, I want to walk us through and understand who the man was towards the end of his life. So let me categorize, if, I would, if you will allow me this morning, so that we might fully understand Joseph and God's wonder. In Genesis 42 through 45, we find the climax or that climactic event in the life of Joseph. In particular, that comes in Genesis 42. It is when he is moved from the prison house into Pharaoh's house and he saves Egypt. He saves Pharaoh. He saves his family. He saves the whole world from a famine. That is the total climax of his life. That is what he was living for. That's what God had designed him for. Yet there was still a lot of loose ends to tie up. Now, how many are literature buffs in here? Three of you, congratulations. The rest of us will hang out with you when the quizzes come. But after a climactic moment in a story, what happens? Well, the French call it a denouement. It is the tying up of all the loose ends. In fact, the word denouement in the French literally means to untie the knots that the author has already filled out or has created within the story. And what happens in the life of Joseph is all the things that were wrong, all the knots of life, God just unties them. He does it in such a wonderfully gracious way. As we find it then in chapters 43 and 45, Joseph's brothers come to him. And ultimately in that same passage, it's revealed to Jacob that God has proven his word true, that Joseph would be their savior, their rescuer. God had spared Joseph's life and God had positioned Joseph to save his family's life in this famine. We would read this in Genesis 45 and beginning in verse 25. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him saying, Joseph is yet alive and he's the governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. Oh, what a testimony about his boys. Sorry, sons, you're a bunch of liars. I don't think I can believe you. And they told him all that the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw, that is, Jacob saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Notice the next phrase, and Israel. May I say to you, in your flesh, you are Jacob. In the spirit that is revived, you are Israel. Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. 
He didn't believe the possessions. He finally believed that which was sent was sent from someone that cared for them. I will go and see him before I die. If we move then into Genesis chapter 46, 7, 8, and 9, we find that Israel both comes down to Egypt and then gives his final blessings upon his boys. This travel down to Egypt was approved by God. If you'll remember in the life of Jacob, he, he could recall that Abraham and Isaac, his grandfather and father, had gone down into Egypt and it was bad timing for them. It was a problem. It wasn't a good situation. But we find this in chapter 46 and verse 2. And God spake unto Israel in the vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. What a truth that very last phrase is. Joseph will let you see who I am and what I've done. Oh, that's the wonder of a life lived for Jesus Christ, a life lived for God. God is manifest through us. Jacob could go down and see that God kept his word. The blind eyes could see. In chapters 48 and 9, Jacob is dying and he blesses his sons. It's interesting if you read those two chapters, how well a father should know his kids. He knows his kids well. There's some corrective tone in it, and there's also some encouraging tone in his blessings of his boys. It brings us then to the very end of Jacob's life and then Joseph's life as well in Genesis chapter number 50. In verse 15 of Genesis 50, the Bible says this, And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure, or perhaps, or possibly, he might hate us. We pause for a second. Do you think that was a clear assessment on their part? I mean, after all they'd done to him and all that they caused him, I think that was a pretty fair assessment. All right, these guys weren't dummies. They understood life and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee, now the trespasses of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, Forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept. I have in my Bible underlined that phrase, Joseph wept, and I wrote John eleven thirty five because there it says, Jesus wept. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, It's about time I'm going to take it out on you. Oh, that's not in the real version. Fear not. For am I in the place of God? God has done a wonderful work in my life, Joseph is admitting to them. And though you meant it for evil, he's going to tell them, God meant it for good. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. A life like Joseph's should end with a focus on the God of Wonder, a wonderful God indeed that we serve. God is the one who did all the work 
of the good things in the life of Joseph. Joseph lived of God's word, by God's will, in God's way, and for God's work. That's what we've looked at the last four Sundays as we've studied this man's life. And now we finish with an understanding of God's glorious wonder behind a life that has actually lived that way. The question I have for us this morning is, are you willing to live that way? If you'll live of his word, in his way, by his will, and for his work, you too will demonstrate a glorious and wonderful God to the world around us. The problem is we don't live any of the first four, and yet we want God to be wonderful through us. It doesn't work that way. The life of Joseph teaches us the only way that God's glory can truly be manifested is when we are in his word, his way, and his will doing his work. I chose the word wonder as the conclusion, not just because it's a W. It seems to fit, right? If I'm going to be a good preacher, it has to be homiletically and alliterated correctly. But the truth of the matter is, the word wonder just means awe mingled with admiration produced by the unexpected, inexplicable, and supernatural outworking of God. God's wonder flows out in two ways through the life of Joseph. Number one, the person of God's greatness. It it flows out. We find first that it flows through his greatness. Joseph knew the true wonder of God. May I make a suggestion this morning? You can too. God's greatness is found in His person, who He is. That brings us to God's attributes. An attribute is just a characteristic that is inherent as as part of a person. It's just built into them. It's who they are. For example, I stand before you this morning as a 5 foot 9 inch, hazel eyed, mostly balding, middle aged man. Those are all attributes of me. They're true. You can see them. And that's when we talk about attributes of God, what God is. God has shared and exclusive attributes. We call them both communicable and non-communicable attributes in the theological realm. The communicable attributes of God, humans can also exhibit love, kindness, joy, justice, wrath, anger, And the list could go on. These are attributes that God has in perfection that we as mankind can exhibit even in our imperfection. The greatness of God, however, that Joseph knew was found in God's non-communicable attributes. What are those non-communicable attributes? Well, the first two we'll not deal with today. They are immutability, the fact that God never changes. God says in his word through the prophet, I am the Lord, I change not. God never changes. The second is his eternality. That means he has no beginning and no end. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And thus the eternality of God, his his immutable eternality, is not what we would be talking about this morning. Though those are non-communicated attributes, you cannot be eternal. You have everlasting life in Jesus Christ. The Bible's very specific when it gives those words. Because you had a start date, a conception date, but if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you will have never an expiration date. You will live forever in Jesus Christ. So when we think of these attributes then, we come to seeing three in the life of Joseph. Now I'm going to pause for one second. Do I sound loud this morning? Scott, I might be coming out of here because either I'm going deaf or getting old or something. It's probably all of the above, but... uh, I feel like I sound loud this morning. I don't know. In his walk with God, Joseph relied heavily on three what we call 
all, and I put that in quotes, divine attributes of God. First in our outlines, Joseph knew the omniscience of God, the omniscience of God, we might write. What does that mean? Well, science just means knowledge and omni just means all. Where do we see the trust of Joseph in the omniscience of God? Well, in this and this alone. He knew that God knew everything. He trusted the fact that if God said something, he knew what he was talking about. This is very personal for us this morning. The Apostle John writes this in 1 John 3 and in verse 24. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. Let me pause. That first part of the verse is a great message. I've preached it before. You ever feel like you don't know Jesus Christ or that you've never even been saved because you were committing a sin? And the answer is your heart is condemning you. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God is greater than your heart. But John and the Spirit of God in his wisdom is so wise. Not only does he preach a good message in the first part of the verse, in the latter part of the verse, he says this, and knoweth all things. Boy, that seems like a throwaway line, but it's not. It speaks to the omniscience of Almighty God. God literally knows everything. We are right to say this morning that, it, that God is all knowledge. It's why the writer of Proverbs says that wisdom is the principal thing in getting. Because when we get the wisdom of God, we get all of His knowledge. We get all of what He knows. And He knows everything. What does God know? Ask yourself that question this morning. What does God know? Maybe more importantly, what does God know about you? Let's go back to just talking about all of the things that God knows. Let's move away from what God knows about me. No, no. What does God know about you? Here's what we do know of God. He knows every possible choice in every possible scenario of every living person who has ever lived. That's what it means to be omniscient. He knows every possible choice in every possible scenario of every living person who has ever lived. Now let your brain think on that for a minute. Now you might come back to me later and say, oh, I'm catching back up in the sermon. I'm still stuck in that first point that you made, Pastor, to think that God knows every possible choice of every possible person whomever has lived. That's an amazing thought. But that's just the beginning of what God's omniscience is about. God is greater than that. He knows the course and the cause for every meteor, every planet, every star in every galaxy of our universe. Trillions upon trillions upon trillions of mathematical calculations with gravity, time, and space all playing into it. God knows that. What else does God know? He knows every molecule. He knows every protein. He knows every atom and every particle. He knows all of their movements, all of their actions, all of their responses and interactions with each other. He understands everything about everything. That's a pretty amazing God. May I also say then personally that God knows every path that we have taken. He knows the end of every choice that every human may have ever made. He knows if you repent, what that will yield and bring into your life. He also knows if you choose to remain unrepentant, what the consequences will be. And I'm not just talking about for salvation. That's the obvious. If we receive Christ, it's eternal life and heaven is our future. If we reject him, it is death and condemnation and hell is our future. I mean, even for the Christian, when the spirit of God in a church service says, Oh, hello, hello, I want you to make this decision. And you say, not right now. He knows what the consequences of that rejection are. He also knows what the consequences of you yielding in that moment will be. Joseph understood this God in this way. 
Joseph trusted in the all-knowing, all-wise God. Joseph knew that God knew everything. Charles Spurgeon once told a young theological student who came to him, speaking of the omniscience of God, wondering if God actually knew everything. He said, young man, allow me to give you this word of advice. Give the Lord credit for knowing things that you don't understand. Isn't that where we kind of put God in a box? Well, if I can't understand it, I'm sure God can't understand it. No, no, God knows it fully. He knows the beginning from the end, the Bible tells us. Joseph could not understand the life he would live, nor could he know how the setbacks and the disappointments could yield success. At every turn, he probably thought, what is happening here? And God said, I know exactly what's happening. You just keep trusting me. I am a wonderful God, whether the moment of circumstances proves that true in your, in your mind or not. God does have what's best for us in his heart. God also knew where each of those choices, those setbacks and disappointments would lead Joseph. They, he knew what they would produce in Joseph and what they would bring forth from the life of Joseph. God knew exactly what he told the prophet Jeremiah about the people of Israel when they were dispersed, when they were in their punishment. Here's what God said to them. It's the same thing that Joseph believed in and it's the same thing as Christians today. When the world and its circumstances don't make sense, when the troubles of life set in upon us, we can look at Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 and understand that this is God. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Saith who? The Lord, the omniscient God. Thoughts of peace, not of evil. To give you that word expected means an anticipated or hoped for end. Joseph knew God's greatness because he knew God's omniscience. But he also knew the omnipotence of God. It wasn't just that God knew what was going on. God was in control. God works in our lives, my friend. God is the power behind the circumstances. He has the ability to override. He has the ability to intervene. And yes, he even allows the circumstances and difficulties often to come into our life. There are many times when people come to me and say, Pastor, why did this happen? Why has this occurred in my life? What is God up to? And even as the pastor, I have to say, I don't know, but I know he's at work. Would you please tell me exactly how he's working? I can tell you that he's always working. He has the ability to override. He has the ability to intervene. And yes, he even has the ability to allow the circumstances to continue because he uses them to shape and to mold us into what he would have us be. That is the wonder of God. Not the wonder of man and not the wonder of who we are in our might, but the wonder of God that he, the omniscient and omnipotent God, would actually deign to take time to spend with us. That he even cares. It's an amazing God. Think of it this way when we think of the omnipotence of God. Nothing is too big for God to accomplish. And nothing is too small for Him to use in accomplishing it. Stop and think about that for a second. Sometimes we get lost in the mundane things of life. We see tragedies. We see difficulties. We see the big things of life and we think, well, God's just going to work in some way in your life, I'm sure. And that's true. 
But what I'm suggesting to you is if you understand the omnipotence of God, the control and working of God, that it's not just the big grand things of life that God uses to shape and mold us. It's also the everyday decisions. I haven't used this yet on my boys, but it's, it's literally, literally the things like brush your teeth, obey mom and dad in each decision. It's also true for Jessica and I. Do what is right. Live by the book. Be obedient. It's good for child as it is for the parent. The point is in the omnipotence of God, we must rely or relax back into the fact that he is working. And we have to let that work work its way out, even if it takes a long time. Joseph was sold into slavery at 17. It's not until he's in his mid-30s that he comes before Pharaoh. What he thought during those intervening years, I don't know. But I do know that along the way he trusted that God was in control and that God was working. He was no different than Job. Job of old said this in Job 42 and verse 2. After his life had fallen apart and after he had come to complain to God in chapter 38, God thunders back into his life. He says, were you there when I hung the stars and the moon and the sun? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there? Tell me, man. God thunders. And if we're not careful and we question his omnipotence, he will show himself strong. Here's what Job said in 42 and verse 2. I know that thou canst do everything. This is Job's final confession. And that no thought can be withholden from thee. Job understood in his final confession the actual power of God to work. In the next verses, Job would say this, Therefore I have uttered that I understood not things, he says, too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Job said, I didn't know how you were working, God, but now I see that you were always at work. That's what Joseph figured out. May I suggest to you, for those of us that are living in the middle of life, or at the beginning of life, or those who may even be into the sunset of life, it is good to trust that God is in control of your life. I don't know what's going on in your all's homes. As the church continually grows, the less intimately I can know every one of our church members. But I do know this, that God's in control if you will allow him to. Remember, the word that we chose for Joseph to begin in all of these messages is the word surrender. You have to surrender to his omnipotence. He's still going to be in control, but you've got to surrender to it so that you can live the life that God's designed for you to live. Joseph knew the omniscience of God. He knew the omnipotence of God, but let us see, he knew the omnipresence of God. Joseph knew the presence of God. There's never a time you are ever alone. Think that through. There is never a time where you are ever alone. Paul explains this truth to the polytheistic, pantheistic Athenians on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. In fact, in the earlier verses, just before the one that we'll read in verse 28, he he says to them, hey, in all of these things, I perceive that you're too superstitious. You're believing in everything. You're just hoping everything is everything. And there's one, the unknown God, the shrine or the temple that was set up to the unknown God. He is stopped in front of that. Paul is preaching to them about this God they don't know. And here's how he describes that God to them in one phrase. In Acts 17 and verse 28, he says, For in Him, in God, we live, we move, we have our being. Think that through. 
He quotes the fact that their prophets, their own people that were their teachers and philosophers of Greece said, look, we understand there is some God or some deity out there. We put this unknown God here. And, God, and, and Paul says, no, that's not an unknown God. That is the true God. And he is present with us. God is not in everything. He's not a living force. He is the life of everything. He is everywhere all at once. God was very present with Joseph as much as he was very present with Moses and David and Isaiah and every other saint as much as he is very present in this room today. The great lapse, the great failure, the great fault of every Christian today is that we forget about his presence. Can I suggest to you, teenager, when you are out disobeying your parents or when you're in some kind of sin, God is there riding in the car with you. May I suggest to you, husband and wife, when you go out and live your life against God or against his word and you don't care about the things of God, God is still present there with you. It's not as if you snuck away from him. The Bible tells us that God makes the secret things known. Why? Because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. We can never leave God's presence. Oh, if we could settle into that reality this morning. It would change how we act, how we talk, what we do, and where we go. While we can never lose or leave His presence, we can lose the sense of His presence. In other words, we become blissfully unaware in our sinfulness. The Bible teaches clearly that there is a real tangible knowledge of being in God's manifest presence. Have you ever had that time? It's happened a couple times, especially here at church, either in a preaching service or there was recently, the last couple of weeks, a time when a couple of us and the staff were talking about something and all three of us had come to the same Bible conclusion without talking and there was like a little bit of a moment of the hair standing up on your arm. I'm not suggesting that's where God's presence is. The point is God's Holy Spirit, His manifest presence today, is and wants to be very real in your life. And so while God is omnipresent everywhere, at once. He wants to manifest his presence in your life. Joseph knew both the manifest presence of God back in his initial vision. God had made himself known to him. But also Joseph lived daily with the recognition of God's omnipresence. How can I sin against God? He said to Potiphar's wife. How can I do this great evil? Why? Because I recognize that God is here and God is watching. What would you do different this week if you lived with these three omnis as realities in your life? You see, the wonderful God behind Joseph is the person of God himself in his triunity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first wonder that Joseph knew was the person of God and his greatness. The second is the product of God's grace. It's not just the person of God's greatness, but it is what is produced in us because of that person. This is the manifest life of Joseph. This is what we can observe. This is what we can study. And we'll give an opinion here. I'm always careful when I do this from the pulpit. The most wonderful revealed aspect of God is His grace. Now, some of you might say, well, I think it's His love. Okay, that's fine. Again, I'm, I, we'll figure it out in heaven. And my answer, the answer God will probably give us is, yes, all of them are the most m- m- wonderful and fascinating things of my revelation. But the reason I say that is because of this. God 
offers himself to us in grace. We don't deserve it. We have no reason for it. But God, of his own volitional will, says, I want to be a part of your life. He did not have to do so. Let's step all the way back out of time and into eternity past. God was completely content in existing without a human race. (gasps) I mean, it kind of disappoints us because, you know, there's been like 30, 40 billion people that have ever walked the face of planet Earth, and we all think we're the most important some mornings. And all I'm suggesting to you is that God in His eternality, in His infinite nature, did not have to create us. It was literally an act of His grace that He said, all right, I'm going to make a race. And not only was he gracious in creating this, he continued in his graciousness as he existed. He would continue in that perfection without us in joy and satisfaction. He's content in himself. However, in his grace, he created man. Not only did he create us, he created us in his image. He created us with free will. He created us with the capacity to lovingly respond or in hatred reject his grace and himself. Adam rejected God's grace in the garden. From that rejection, God's grace is manifest then in his redemptive love. He moves from the creative love of, I love you, I want to create you, to, I love you, I want to redeem you, when Adam fell. God's grace is manifest in his redemptive love, which led Jesus to Calvary, ultimately. God graciously redeemed mankind through mankind's faith, response, to that offer. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace, therefore, is a massively complex subject. We are not going to study it in the final 15 minutes this morning, okay? I'm simply going to note the ways in which grace produced certain things in the life of Joseph. Because God's grace can do the same in us. And that's what makes him so wonderful. The Bible tells us that Jesus says in John 15 and verse 16, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. This is a good definition of God's grace. God choosing undeserving us. It is his unmerited favor. He is talking about God's divine act of grace, both in creation and in redemption for us. Joseph responded in his day to God's gracious word to him. In fact, the latter part of that verse that we see there, Jesus says, I've ordained you because I chose you, because I showed or manifested my grace to you. I am ordaining, I'm choosing, I'm directing you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Would you say that Joseph's life was productive? And the answer is most definitely it was productive. Would you have said in the pit that it was productive? Maybe not. In Potiphar's house and under false accusation, perhaps not. In the prison, no way. In Pharaoh's house, maybe. And then in saving of Egypt and his family, most definitely. Do you see where we miss it? The grace of God was manifesting itself in every one of those places in the life of Joseph. But so often, all we do is see the success. The outward manifestation of sin. Sometimes failures are God's grace as well. Sometimes setbacks and disappointments are God's grace. Joseph responded to God's gracious word to him in the beginning. And God was always faithful to him. 
with sufficient and able grace. Joseph believed that he would save and provide for his family. So all that happened in his life paled in comparison to the fact that God's grace was upon him and that Joseph believed that God was good and gracious to him and that that grace was always working to make his life into what God both desired and designed. May I submit to you this morning, the reason we fail God is because we fail to see that God is up to something in our life, both designing it and desiring it. Joseph was the embodiment of Paul's humble admonition to the Philippians in Philippians 2 and verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of your good pleasure. I think I got a word there, didn't I? Wrong. I don't even need to get my glasses out and see if I read it. I know I read a word wrong on purpose. Whose pleasure is God concerned about working through your life towards? Yours or his? His. The rest of this passage in Philippians speaks to exactly the life that Joseph lived. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. The first part of 16 says this, holding forth the word of life. Paul goes on and adds his words about his ministry that it would not be empty or vain and it would not be a useless labor. But for Joseph, it was successful. For Paul, it was successful. For you, is it successful? Joseph's life was a product of God's grace. It began by Joseph knowing first God's sufficiency. Our text that we read this morning, Psalm 105 and verse 19, he says, until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord did what? Tried him. God's trials allow us to prove He is sufficient. The verses that precede this say this in verse number 17. He, that is God, sent a man before them. In other words, this was not even the brother's doings. By God's grace, He was the one that took Joseph to Egypt in the fashion He did. That goes beyond our human comprehension. But we talked about the things that God reveals Himself in greatness as His person. And it is omnipotence with omniscience and omnipresence. God said, I sent him a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant whose feet they hurt with fetters or that they constrained. That's what it means to hurt. They, they limited, they halted his step. He couldn't move freely. He was laid in iron. God supplied the grace, my friend, for each day in those fetters for Joseph, in that evil land for Joseph, in that seemingly forsaken place. Well, nobody cares about me. God always cares about you. Because His grace is sufficient for you. Joseph shared Paul's mindset, for, mindset excuse me, and ultimate victory. Paul complained three times to the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, here is the response. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That was true of Paul, and it's equally true of Joseph. Paul answers by saying this, the next statement, the next sentence, he starts by saying, most gladly, therefore, that statement is not Jesus speaking to him as it was in the prior statement of verse nine. This is now Paul's response to what Jesus said. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The only way in which Joseph would read this verse differently is I will rather glory in my incarcerations, in my imprisonments, that the power of God, Jehovah, that's who he would have known, may rest upon me. It's the same mindset. It's the same victory. 
The progression to live in God's sufficiency is to think through the Bible. I give you three statements very quickly in our outlines in this subpoint, and that is this. First, if you want to live in His sufficiency, you have to live content in today. Oh, how many Christians live in the defeat of yesterday or in the despair of tomorrow? Oh, I don't know what a day's going to bring forth. I, I don't either. Oh, I'm so sad about what I did in my life. I can never get over it, Pastor. God says this in Proverbs 27 and verse 1. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Joseph lived in today. May I suggest something to you, Christian? Just live in today. If there's sins from the past, ask for forgiveness and move beyond it. What is going to be on the morrow? I don't know. Just live in today. Because number two, you, you are to live, com- live committed or engaged to today. Not just in it, but make the full use of it. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 34. Take, no th- take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Have you ever had a day where that last statement you say all the time? Sufficient is the evil thereof. Oh my goodness. Man, another terrible day. Well, that's one way to do it. What Jesus is actually saying is live committed to making today the best. How do you do that? Live in God's sufficient grace. The final one that I put in your notes there is live consecrated in each day. James 4 and verse 14, I've preached this many times, especially at funerals of people that I don't know. Sometimes for people that I do know, I use it because it's a good context. But here's what the Bible says. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. What he says in that phrase right there is, you go on making your plans and you don't even care what God thinks. You're living in your sufficiency, not in God's sufficiency. All such rejoicing, he says, is evil. And then he makes a very curious statement because this is the last verse of the chapter and it seems to not fit to what he's just said, but it fits perfectly when you understand that you are to live consecrated in each of the days that you are presently living. He says, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? Sin. Make full use of the day. Oh, how many lazy Christians do we have? Well, I'm going to live for Jesus someday. You will never live for Jesus if that is your phrase. Well, I'll please God tomorrow. Tomorrow will never come. You have to live consecrated in each day. That is living daily in God's sufficiency. Joseph knew God's wonderful sufficiency, and it was a product of God's grace in his life. But secondly, Joseph knew God's sanctity. Sanctity is just the state of being holy. God is holy, therefore we are to be holy, Peter tells us. Joseph knew God's sanctifying work and process. He knew it in the pit. Think of this. In the pit, Joseph had to contemplate betrayal and hatred by his brothers. He had to rationalize that. The only way through those emotions is by relying on the fact that God himself is gracious and kind, even when mankind is hurtful and hateful. In Potiphar's house, he had to overcome lies and deceit. He had to overcome his testimony and character being called into question and being punished for something he didn't do. The only way through that is to have consistent character by God's grace. That is the sanctity or the sanity that we can have in this life. Joseph had to make a choice. 
Should he retaliate? Should he lash out? Should he angrily sulk in bitterness when he was in the prison as, uh, over an offense that he didn't commit? And his answer was, no, I'm going to keep living in the sanctity of who God is. That's his grace. In the prison, he had to maintain trust when the chief butler forgot all about his kindness. You ever had somebody forget about you? I mean, that dirty dog, I was nothing but kind to them, and this is how they treat me? I mean, come on, most of you are half smiling. That means you have somebody in your mind right now that way. All of us do. We all want to be treated right. I got my rights. And God says, you don't. You have grace. Oh, listen, people are going to say all manner of things about you. How do you respond to that? Believe me, there's times you want to say, I'm going to jump down their throat. I'm going to solve this problem. You want to see trouble? Here it comes. It's me. That's what we want to say. If there's anybody that could have said that, it would have been Joseph. In Pharaoh's service, Joseph could have retaliated against all of those. He could have had his hit list. (laughs) Hey, Potiphar, guess what I know about you? I'm in charge now, buddy. Looks like you're being sent to (laughs) name the worst place in the world at that time. That's where he was being sent. Hey, you know what? There's a group of family and a bunch of brothers that live up in this land called Canaan. How about we take an army and destroy them? I mean, Joseph, when he was in power, could have done anything, but he didn't deviate from the gracious way in which he lived. The sanctity of his life. He was holy because God was holy. Joseph trusted that God would reveal himself graciously so long as he, Joseph, lived obediently, diligently, and humbly. He could have understood completely what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. By the way, this verse in verse number 16, it comes in the same chapter where he talks about the Antichrist and the removal of the Holy Spirit of God. Here's what he says to people in the tribulation day in verse number 16. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us an everlasting comfort or consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every what? Good word and that is attitude and action. Every word and every work. Friends, the product of God's grace is our own personal sanctity in the midst of a world that is filled with insanity. The whole world's falling apart, but you shouldn't be. Because you have the sanctifying grace of God in your life. It's sufficient. It's sanctifying. It leads us to the final aspect of God's grace that Joseph knew and what made God so wonderful to him. Joseph knew God's sovereignty. Again, I quote Genesis 50 in verse 19, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for, I am, in, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. It is knowing God's sovereignty that allows for us Self-control. Do you know the person that is filled with God's grace or His Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 has temperance and endurance. The young man or the believer in Jesus Christ who is maturing adds to their faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, and self-control is in that list. The point is, if you want to learn self-control, learn that God is sovereignly in control. It takes the control out of your purview. You don't have to worry about it. 
We said the word for Joseph from the very beginning of these five messages was surrender. He surrendered to God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is a fact, my friend. It's not a supposition. It's not some musing of a biblical mind, but it is a fact. You can see it with your eyes. You can hear it with your ears. You can know it from your mind in the historical context. There is a God, and with that God, we have to do. We have to answer. He's in control. It's why and how Paul could write this. It could be said of Joseph's life in Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are called according to His purpose. Was Joseph called according to God's purpose to this life? Most definitely. Are you called to a life that is to be filled with grace and graciousness and goodness and benevolence to others? Even if they don't deserve it? Most definitely. Well, that'll make me a target. It'll make me, people will take advantage of me. Welcome to being a Christian. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Did he know Joseph before he was formed in his mother's belly? Of course he did. He told Jeremiah the same thing in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. And what did God predetermine for the life of Joseph? That he was going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Joseph is the type of Christ in the Old Testament. May I say, we're Joseph's today. We are little Christ, Christians, supposedly living just like Jesus did. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Here's the great verse in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? Not much. Trust the sovereignty of God. If God be for us, rhetorically he asked, who can be against us? Joseph could have said, not my brothers, not Potiphar and his wife, not the keeper of the prison, not the chief butler, not Pharaoh, not anybody. You can say the same thing. God is sovereign. And that is a gracious gift to we mere mortals. It's an encouragement. It's the wonder of it all, we might say. In closing, Joseph was a man who walked with God. He did so of God's word. He did so by God's will. He did so in God's way. He did so for God's work. And he did so with God's glorious wonder shining out of his life. Do you? Is your life like that? There may not be a more complete man that you can study on how to live right in the whole of the scriptures outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This man, my friends, is worthy as a servant of God for our consideration. For in his life, we see the glory, splendor, and yes, the wonder of a God who works on the behalf of those who love him. Father, help us, I pray, as we close.